Welcome to the Dropship Podcast, where you'll learn how to build and grow a high-ticket dropshipping business and hear stories from successful e-commerce entrepreneurs. Let's kick this thing off. Yo, 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 and welcome back to the Dropship Podcast. John here with you today, another solo show, and this is in fact part three of an Ask Me Anything I did via our Facebook group, The Dropship Tribe, and our YouTube channel, which is at Dropship Breakthrough on YouTube. Now, I've already done two of these. Uh, you, you, if you're a regular listener of the show, you will have heard part one and part two in, in, in the last month or so. Uh, and these were actually recorded back in December of 2022. Uh, it was quite a long session, so we chopped it up into three parts. And this is part three where I am answering both questions that came, were coming through live uh, on the, at, at the time and also some pre-submitted ones. So you can probably guess which ones I had prepared for and which ones I had just uh, gone completely off the cuff. Uh, but it was a bit of fun. And in this one, we've got all sorts of different topics. I talk about dropshipping low-ticket products. I talk about dropshipping if you're under the age of 18. I talk about dropshipping in smaller countries. So if you're somewhere in Europe or maybe in Australia or something like that, I have a bit of a chat about that. We talk about profit margins talk about what color should your add to cart button be, which is a really, uh, you know, unimportant question, but I answered it nonetheless. Shipping times and some really good advice for dropshipping beginners. Question here that was pre-submitted from Christian. Thank you, Christian, for your question. Christian says, hi, John. My question is, when finding your market slash niche in the first stages, how much consideration do you give to the non-high ticket related products that can be sold via the same store. Um, an issue I'm finding is the lower priced items in the niche uh, are the ones that get the higher search traffic in the research phase. Um, the high ticket items don't get as high search volume. Right. Good question, Christian. Um, I'd say it doesn't matter too much. I think um, that's not unusual to see. So higher ticket products tend to have less customers for them than lower ticket products. So, um, and, and that's not a bad thing, right? Now, yes, you do need to make sure that the high ticket products have enough search volume behind them. So in our program, we talk about what those volumes are and everything. Christian, you're in there, so you'll have access to that. So as long as the high ticket items are at a, at a reasonable level, then... Um, it doesn't. It doesn't really matter. Um, if you know, uh, so yeah, I don't think there's a real connection there between the high ticket, the search volume of the high ticket items and the lower ticket items. I mean, it's good to know what the search volume is on the lower ticket items. I mean, you're still going to sell some lower ticket products on a high ticket dropshipping site, right? Um, and oftentimes they it can, they can be good sources of traffic. So let's say um, in in uh, Christian's example, he's sort of identifying the 200 to 400 pounds. Once again, Christian must be in the UK. Um, but let's say two to 400 pounds, two to 400 dollars, three to 500 dollars, you know, somewhere in that range. You're still going to have some of those products on your mar on your website and you can still sell those and make a small profit, okay? So it's, it's not to say you shouldn't sell them or you can't sell them because oftentimes those products are complementary to the higher ticket products. So let's say you've got a $3,000 product. Oftentimes there will be like 400 $200, products that customers use alongside that high ticket product. There might be add-ons that extend the capability of it. They might be accessories or something like that. You absolutely should be selling those, right? Because even selling a three or $400 product, you can still make some profit uh, and you can use it as an upsell. You can bundle it. You can do so much with that sort of stuff. So it's good to know the, the traffic and sometimes you know, at that sort of, I, I'd call that sort of a mid-level price, right? A mid-tier a mid -tier price. It's not low, low ticket, like true low ticket. Um, it's just not high ticket, right? So you can still advertise products sometimes in that price range. It's going to depend on the mar the margin. But if you can sell those sort of mid-level products at break even or better, then what you're doing is you're acquiring customers that you didn't have before. And those customers will be in the market for your high ticket products at some point, it's very likely. And so once, if you can get people in on the those mid to lower ticket products and then upsell them later or you know get them back to purchase from you six months later on the high ticket products, that's a real win. And so sometimes 
the you know two to four hundred pound products are excellent entry points to your business. If you take a more of a customer lifetime value and a long term view of your business, which as I've already mentioned once today, um, you should be building for the long term, not the short term. Um, you're going to find that um, you know those can be a real benefit for your business. But certainly, to go back to the original point, the high ticket products do have to have enough traffic behind them. Um, now, the volume of traffic in each country varies a little bit, and you do have to take into account that um, you know. If you're using a, a, a search traffic research tool like Ubersuggest or something like that, when you put just the root keyword for that high-ticket product in, it's going to spit you out a number, which just relates to that one version of the search term. So don't rest on that um, just in and of itself because there will actually be much more traffic for those products because there are many, many variations on that search term that customers will make that you're not immediately seeing. And so usually like if you... If you put in like you know, let's say I'm I'm in a cell. Um, let's say I'm going to sell a pellet grill. If I just put pellet grill into Google, it's going to tell me that for that particular exact search term, there might be twenty thousand searches a month, right? I'm not just going to rest on that because there's going to be so many variations that come off the word pellet grill that will probably add another twenty to fifty thousand in like relevant uh, amounts of traffic onto it, and so that would be you know, you've got to take that into account, I think. So hope that answers your question, Christian. Thank you very much for it. All right, switching back over to live questions. Here's one submitted from Facebook. Uh, question, what is the best first step to finding supplies in the US? I find it difficult just finding them. Love your podcast. I listen to it every day at work. Thank you so much for listening at work. Um, I'm glad, so glad that your employer is paying you to listen to our podcast. Um, that always makes me very, very happy. Um, so the best first step to finding suppliers in the US is making sure that you're in the right market. Okay. So if you're going through the market selection, probably, um, you know, you, you, part of that should be, um, uh, find, like planning to, to go into a market or a niche where there are suppliers, identifiable suppliers. So assuming that you've done that, uh, as in you can see, and and so can you see when like once again, I, as, let's say I'm going to sell pellet grills, right, in over there in the US, what I'm going to do, is, like I've thought of that as an idea. I've gone, right, pellet grills, yeah, high ticket, yep, uh, passionate market, yeah, to a certain extent, uh, I'm going to think about selling that. So my next step's probably going to be, firstly, is I'm going to go to other websites that sell pellet grills and I'm going to see what brands are they selling on their website. So those brands are your suppliers. So if I go to a pellet grill website and I can identify six different brands of pellet grills, then that's six suppliers, right? Each of those brands, assuming they're all separate companies, is going to be a supplier. So there, I've got six suppliers. So I'm going to go through all of the uh, prospective um, competitor sites and just see how many individual brands I can see there. Um, the other thing you can do is go into Google Shopping and search for pellet grills and Google will often give you a list. Uh, in If you click into the shopping tab, it will give you a list down the left-hand side of the page of the different brands in the space um, that are relevant to the pellet grills, that search. Uh, once again, they can give you an idea. Um, then I'm going to get, you know, if, that, if that's leaving me short, I would be jumping onto Google and I'm going to be searching things like pellet grill suppliers, pellet grill manufacturers, pellet grill brands, pellet grill importers, pellet grill distributors. These are all variations on the search term. I'm going to see what websites are coming up. Um, now, there might be some websites that list out brands. There might be, um, you know, individual brands' websites come up. And so I'm going to use that to identify them as well. In some markets and niches, there will be an industry website. These are usually, if you've got one of these, this makes it super, like let's say there's an industry body. Um, so, you know, I found this in uh, like, uh, you know, um, sometimes more technical spaces, but there'll, there'll be like an industry association or something that all of the suppliers are a part of, all of the manufacturers in that space are a part of. Usually those those industry associations list all of their members on their website on the front page of their website or there's a link to it right and so you can go and see 
because it's like an advertising tool for the members of that association. They can they'll sell on their website. We're a member of this association. It's like a it's a good thing apparently. So they they tend to advertise it. So it's usually public information, and so you can see the list of their members, um, which immediately identifies them as a manufacturer of whatever the industry is in, right? So then you can go from there to their website and see if they have the type of products you want. If they do, then you have, you've identified them as a supplier. So um, that's uh, that's what I would what I would say. Um, go through those steps, and you know if you're going to other, um, if, if every of your competitor sites has no brand names for their products or anything like that, then that might be a bit of a red flag for me about that market in particular. Now, there are some good markets out there where there isn't a lot of brand recognition and there aren't many brand names or anything like that, but there are also a lot of ones like that that just aren't good niches to be in as well. So um, that might be, once again, potentially a bit of a red flag for me about that market if you don't see any identifiable um, going through the processes I've just talked about. If you can't see any identifiable brand names, that might be a reason why you shouldn't sell those products in the first place. So thanks for that question. Hey, it's John here. I just want to take a really quick break from the episode to let you know about something exciting that we've got happening over at Dropship Breakthrough. Now, one of the first questions that anyone looking to get into high-ticket dropshipping asks is, what am I going to sell? What's my products going to be? What are the profitable products going to be that I'm going to build a business around? And it's one of the things that people worry about the most, that they're going to get that wrong. And that's fair enough. Picking the wrong products to sell is one of the biggest mistakes that people looking to start a dropshipping business make. So what if I said we could fix that for you and solve that problem, answer that question for you in the next five days? Well, the answer is we absolutely can do that. So I want to introduce you to you the Dropship Breakthrough 5-Day Challenge. And the five-day challenge is basically like a mini workshop that over the course of five days is going to show you and help you find the profitable products that you can build a high-ticket dropshipping business around. So each day for five days, you're going to get a lesson or two to go through. And each of those videos together is going to show you the process that we've used and Ben and I have used, not just Ben and I, but over 400 of our students have used to find profitable high-ticket products that are viable for the dropshipping business model. So you're going to get a lesson every day, you know, watch that lesson. And at the end of the five days, you'll know what you're going to sell. And I'm going to throw a few interesting bonuses in there as well. Now, the best part of this is you can join the challenge today for just $97. So single investment of $97, and you're going to then know what you can build a business around with a super high level of confidence so that you can start your business and not have to worry about that maybe you've picked the wrong products and you're going to have to go back to scratch at some point. So all you need to do to join the Dropship Breakthrough 5-Day Challenge is head to Dropship Breakthrough, that's spelled B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-U dot com forward slash five, the number five. You'll find the link below in the show notes. All you have to do is head there, sign up on that page, and you will be immediately and instantly into the five-day challenge and you can get started straight away. So head over there, join the challenge. And once again, it's backed as always by our 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you take the challenge and you think it was rubbish, you don't, you couldn't identify any products or anything like that, you can request your money back and we'll hit you straight back up with that. So head on over. If you're looking to get started, if you've been sitting on the fence, if you've been worrying about finding the right products, head over, take the five-day challenge today at dropshipbreakthrough.com forward slash five. Next question, live once again, Facebook. Um, Is it possible to host a business like this under the age of 18? Good question. And we actually get this a lot these days. And one of the things I think is very exciting is that so many people under the age of 18 are already thinking about getting into business and, and, and an online business in particular. I think if I contrast that, and I'm going to sound like a semi-old person here, but um, if I contrast that to when I was 17 or 16 or something like that, you know, the thought of starting your own business was you know, extremely foreign, difficult, felt very difficult. I know people, people did it back then, but it was super rare. 
we get people under the age of 18 all the time um, looking to start a business. And I think that's super exciting, you know. Um, I think, uh, you know, maybe one of the um, upsides of social media in some ways is that people do get exposed to possibilities. There are a lot of traps for young people online, I think, um, because... Uh, and not to be condescending, but you're probably still developing a little bit of a bullshit detector. And so um, for somebody who's not been around this stuff long, it can be hard to to spot the bullshit opportunities from the good ones. But is it possible? Um, it is possible, yes. Um, we do have, I mean, we have people in our program who are under the age of 18, um, uh, you know, which, and, and there's some really hungry and, and cool people there who are doing some cool things, um, and making some progress. You know, there, there's, there's a couple of things to be aware of though. I mean, you can't get a credit card, for example, when you're under the age of 18. Um, now you don't need a credit card either. I'm going to say that that's not necessary, but just be aware you can't. And you, you also can't, and once again, I'm, not going to hand on my heart this for every single jurisdiction, but I don't believe you can form a company or that sort of thing by yourself. So um, that's something to bear in mind as well. Uh, so could you do this uh, in conjunction with your parents, for example? Yes, that's an option. Now, it might not be an option that you like the thought of, but that is an option um, to have somebody who is uh, a person you trust in your life uh, who is an adult um, to help you get started? Um, and so that 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 you know, it's possible to do. There may be a few additional challenges there, but it is possible to do. And you know, if if you're thinking about it, I would say, you know, getting into online business and you you want to give yourself a head start into the business world because at that age you have so much time. You don't have to rush. You don't have to move quickly. You've got so much time of you in, in your life to get this right or to get something right that you can probably screw it up a few times. It's not going to make any difference to your life whatsoever, right? And that's that's a really exciting place to be. So um, I would say it's possible. Give it a go. You don't need to rush. If you're not far off 18, you're going to be 18 soon, then you know so all of, some of those things aren't, aren't much of a concern. So you can do it, definitely. Uh, cool. Moving on, question coming in from YouTube from Will. Hey, Will. Uh, Will says, just joined your course about two weeks ago and I'm loving it so far. I've got a question. Do you think that very niche markets, something that caters for a very particular audience, are workable in terms of selling in a smaller country such as Australia? Good question, Will. Uh, and we do have people uh, in you know who are, who are starting these businesses in places like Australia, the United Kingdom, Canada. Uh, which have a, a considerably smaller population um, than, say, the US, which is the the you know we tend to talk about most things in US terms, and the population there is much larger than in some of the other countries where high ticket dropshipping can work. So, this is probably one of the things that I do suggest people modify a little bit um, in terms of the business setup stage in those smaller countries. So, um, I think that uh, yes, the answer. No, sorry, the reverse. I'm just reading your question again. Uh, no, I wouldn't go for a very niche market in a smaller country. Um, and the reason for that is not that you won't make any sales or that you can't build a good business. It's just that you're going to run out of runway. Um, you know, you're going to run out of takeoff runway, right? Because it's it's going to if it's a very niche market, it's going to be a very very small market too. And so you could very much say that you're going to corner that market fairly easily like you're going to get your foot in the door and you may um, depending on the comp level of competition because you've still got to check that if it's too competitive and it's a really small market you probably stay away from it but um, if you can get your foot in the door um, you you could become quite a big fish in that small market very quickly and so you you'll be able you might make faster progress initially than you would in a much larger market but you're going to hit the limits of that market really quickly. And so your business may grow quickly and then plateau, right? And then you're going to be sitting there thinking, okay, so what am I going to do here to, in the long term to, to keep this thing growing? Because it may plateau before it gets to the level you would like it to get to, um, just because there's not enough customers there to grow it further. Um, so 
Whereas if you go into a if you if you start a bit broader, um, you know, it's going to be a bit bigger in the beginning, which means it might start a bit slower because it's going to take you a little bit longer to get your foot in the door in some cases, but your growth zone is a lot bigger, higher, longer, um, and so you can take that to more places. And so I think for smaller markets, usually what I recommend people do is to start a bit or set your business up with a bit of a broader approach in mind. Now, the the definition of your market or your niche still needs to be related items that you're primarily going to sell to one ideal customer. Um, but, you know, uh, for example, um, you know, if I think about um, – let me think of an example here. If I think about like I'm going to sell surfboards, right? Now, surfing is a bad example for Australia because we have a large surfing population, but it's, it's, it's an okay example. I wouldn't just start a business that sells just surfboards, um, for example. Um, let's assume this is actually a small example. But I might sell um, uh, a store that sells boards, a board store, right? So you've got different you know, wakeboards, for example, snowboards, surfboards. Why? Because there's a lot of crossover between those products. There are a lot of people that surf and do other board-related sports. Not everybody, right, for sure, but a lot of people do, right? So there's crossover there. And so that gives me automatically then a bigger market. It gives me a bigger market, not just because there are more potential people to go into there at any one time because there's more types of products, but it also gives me an ability to uh, a better ability to sell to the same customer more than once, right? Because not only could somebody buy multiple surfboards from me, but they might buy multiple surfboards and multiple other boards from me, right? If they are into some of those. So it gives me being able to resell uh, in a small market, it gives you kind of like a force multiplier. It makes a smaller market bigger by definition if you've got if you focus more on having avenues to make multiple sales to the same customer. So yeah, don't go super specific in Australia, go a little bit broader or at least set your site up so that it can be broader down the track. So how you name your business, what your domain is, set it up um, so that it can do better down the track. And uh, I think um, that's the way to do it. Even if you start with a very narrow selection of products, aim to expand it over time and set your business up so that, you know, if I call my site the surfboard warehouse and then I start selling snowboards, it look it seemed, you know, people know me as the surfboard place. It seems a bit strange sometimes to then go and sell something else. Um, not always, but it can do. So just think a bit ahead and, and that'll get you in the right direction. Thanks for the question, Will. All right, next question from a Facebook person. I don't have the name. When you are picking your niche, how worried should you be on the size of your competitor and their SEO experience? Um, look, I think I don't overanalyze this stuff. So I definitely want to be looking at how many competitors are in the market and we do have an upper limit for that, of course. Um, and, and primarily that's about, you know, like I could find you markets in the US where there's, 30 to 50 competitors. You know, there's there's quite a few of those, right? Um, the, whether they're good, high quality or not, it's just that there's so many of them that you get lost below, but in amongst all that in various marketing channels that you might use. And it's really difficult to po poke your head up above that um, and get people to take any notice of you, right? Because there's just too many. It's like you're going up against an army kind of thing. And, you know, as an individual going up against an army, even if you're the best in the world, just force of numbers can overwhelm you uh, in some circumstances. Um, if the competition in your market, potential market is lower, uh, but some of them are doing a really amazing job, um, look, I would look at them and see what they're doing. Uh, I think just because one business is doing well organically doesn't mean no other business can do well organically. I think that so you can say like I, I see this a lot, particularly in Australia for some reason, is that there are businesses when you look at them, they look like they're doing very well organically, but they're not actually doing anything active 
in the SEO space, right? They don't appear to be doing anything on their website. They're not posting fresh content. They're not doing any of that sort of thing. And I think in some markets, certain businesses get to the top organically um, just because they were the first there and they did, they might've done a lot of work years ago, but they've kind of slacked off and they don't really do it anymore. Um, and uh, that is an opportunity. Yes, they might be doing really well, but doesn't that doesn't mean that you can't take advantage of the fact that they're not doing anything. So um, like as in if you come in there with an active SEO strategy um, and start you know, doing things better than they are right now because Google loves what's happening now as much as or more than they love what's happened in the past, you can make inroads into that. And there may even be SEO avenues that they, they haven't even explored yet that you can explore. So that's why I say I think there's a lot of nuance to that conversation that I don't think um, are helpful when you're or, or are a big enough barrier to you when you're in the market selection stage at the start of your business. So, um, yeah, that, that's probably my answer is that I don't um, focus on it too much. All right, next question. We've got another one here. This one's from The Terminator on YouTube. Hello, The Terminator. The Terminator asks, what are your profit margins and how do you calculate them? All right, so, well, if we're talking about high-ticket dropshipping, that's a fairly uh, easy one in the sense of, of how they're calculated because uh, dropshipping is a fairly simple business model. So profit margins will rate, differ from supplier to supplier. That's the first thing to say. So if I've got 10 suppliers for my high-ticket dropshipping website, they're going to have different margins. I might have one that's 30% gross. I might have um, one that's 50% gross. I might have one that's 25% gross. So you're going to get a range, right? Um, you, you're not going to have every supplier with exactly the same. You might have some that are the same, but you're not going to have them all be exactly the same if you've got a number of suppliers. So the gross margin obviously is just simply the calculation between what price you're selling it from minus what price you're buying it off the supplier from. So they're going to give you a price list with your buy price on it, your wholesale price. And then if you're in the US, usually they're going to say, this is the minimum advertised retail price you can sell it at, which is where you're going to sell it at. Or sometimes if you're like in Australia or something like that, you might you don't have that. You might They might give you a recommended retail price or something. So it's going to be the retail price minus the buy price. That's your gross margin. And so from that, you know, um, you're going to then subtract all the, costs you incur to sell that product and you're going to come up with your net margin right so um you know you're going to have things like if you're doing free shipping and you're going to cover the cost of shipping the cost of the shipping is going to come out of that margin uh if you're spending money on ads to sell the product you're going to work out what's your cost per sale right and that's going to come out of that margin and so you're going to there's not a lot else to be honest there's some small subscription based costs like for 30 dollars a month for shopify or you know, those sort of things. There's there's not a lot of other costs there. Um, but uh, that's how you come calculate your margins. And, you know, you'll track, you should be tracking all of that in, a, in, in some sort of tool to help you understand, you know, what the costs are for each sale so that you can see actually where your true profit lies and all of that sort of thing. So in the beginning, you can actually do that with a very simple spreadsheet. Um, which is one that, uh, you know, we provide our students in Dropship Breakthrough. We give them a financial tracking sheet that can literally do the job for you uh, until you get much further down the track. But uh, dropshipping from a financial perspective is a very simple business model. You don't have a lot of big overheads and you have a fairly limited number of them. So it's not hard to do these calculations. Um, you know, if I looked at the averages industry, like high-ticket dropshipping averages, I mean, an average gross margin probably is around high 20s to 30%. Um, you definitely get them higher than that and you definitely get them lower than that. An average at scale net margin is probably about 15% at scale. And I mean, like if you're multi-million dollar plus stores, uh, you know, when you're at lower numbers, it's easy to be more profitable. But when you really got to do things at scale, the margin tends to go down a little bit, right? Because you incur more overheads and you, you're going to probably be investing more to get a scale with the traffic. So, but 15%. That's actually the average in the US for any type of business. So that's not a bad thing. Some people hear that number and they're like, oh, that's really low. But sure, what if your business is doing a million dollars a month in revenue? What's 15% of that? You're putting it in your pocket. It's pretty good if you ask me. So that's my answer. The Terminator, thank you very much for your question. Next question. Somebody's uh, having a bit of a joke here. What color should I make the add to cart button? Lol, JK jokes. 
Well, look, yeah, yeah, it's it's not an important question, but I'll give you an answer all the same. Your add to cart button should be a color that contrasts from the rest of your website. So don't make it a color that you've used everywhere else on your website. Your ad, your call to actions and your add to cart button is a call to action uh, should be a different color or a color that it should be not just a different color, but not a complementary color. It should be a contrasting color to the primary color on your website. Now, I'm not somebody who believes you should have a rainbow website, okay? You should not have a vast array of colors used on your website. You want like as in, you know, your branding and all that sort of thing. Two colors. That's that's all you need, two colors and white. That's what's going to be on your website. Um, now, to find a contrasting color, you need to look at a color wheel. So a contrasting color is if you look at a color wheel, which is like a rainbow going around a wheel kind of thing, like the different colors, on a color wheel, contrasting colors are opposite each other. So if you've got a pinpoint in the center of the wheel, there's a color here. This is really hard because it's mirrored. The contrasting one's going to be up there to here, right? Opposite sides of the color wheel. So if you want to see a good uh, way to find good color combinations and contrasting colors, just go to Google and search Canva color combinations. And the first result you should get, organic results should be a blog post from Canva, which is an online web, uh, online uh, graphic design tool. Uh, and it's got some really helpful information about all of this sort of stuff and to help you identify something. So there is no best color for your ad to cut button. It's not blue. It's not green. It's contrasting colors. So it pops off the page and grabs people's attention. But what I will give you here is a little extra dark Lord tactic for ad to cut buttons. Uh, change it from try changing it from add to cart to something like secure yours now, right? So add to cart is not outcome focused. It's not actually outcome focused. Somebody isn't shopping on your cart on your website to add something to cart, right? They're on your website to get a product. So when you use something like secure yours today, it implies that if they take that action, something good for them is going to happen. This is a very like little psychological hack thing, if you like, uh, but try it out. There, I have seen multiple people, uh, including myself, who fl- play around with that and see an increase in their add to cart rate. And ergo, then that often flows into an increased uh, conversion rate. So I'll just throw that one in there for free, but thanks for the question. Not so much of a joke, hey? All right, so next question, just going down the list here and they're, they're coming in a bit quicker, so my apologies if I, if I miss everybody but because uh, we're going to wrap this up soonish. But uh, another question coming in from Superman over on YouTube. Thanks for being here, Superman. Do you think it's possible to succeed with four to five-week shipping? I am thinking about ocean freight with furniture. Uh, look, do I think it's possible to succeed? Uh, it's possible but it's not ideal and the answer is going to be if somebody's in the market for this furniture or they're in the market for furniture right which is not a branded space so people will just buy whatever meets their requirements usually except for the really up luxury end of the market where people do often buy on on uh, brand there are some brands that people will buy um so if they're looking, they're going to be people are going to be looking at multiple websites, right? Comparison shopping all the time. So let's say they see your product with a four to five week shipping time and they like it. They look at another website and they see a product they like just as much with a two to three day shipping time. What? Which one are they going to buy? They're probably not going to buy yours, right? Honestly, I mean, unless there is something wildly unique about your product that would lead somebody to waiting four to five weeks for it when they have something that comes with the faster shipping time, I don't think um, it's as likely to work for you. Now, that's the first reason why I don't like that. The second reason is why. Why would you want to do ocean shipping with furniture? I mean, I don't know what country you're in. If you're in the US, there are a plethora of local suppliers that you can work with, like so many it's not funny that you don't need to get stuff from overseas. There isn't. There is no point to that. It's not. A, it's not a necessity. If you were in a, a really small, more obscure country that didn't have a large uh, base with, you know, um, locally where stored or warehouse stuff, then maybe I could say that that might be something you would consider. But in a larger country, I just don't think like the homeware space. Once again, I wouldn't do furniture either. <laughs> 
But the homeware space is massive in, in any country with an established e-commerce market. So there are local brands and suppliers that you can work with in the first place. So that would be my first thing. Like I, you know, I just don't see unless you're getting a relationship with a really desirable product that is just not available in your country yet. Possibly there may be exceptions to this rule, but you know, ocean shipping as well. You've got a higher chance that those products are going to be damaged. Going to be uh, there's going to be a problem with the shipping container. The shipping container is going to fall off the side of the ship. It's going to get waterlogged. Uh, and what are you going to do then when it lands on the dock or it turns up at the customer's door and it's crap or it's it's broken or it's damaged? How are you going to send it back to the supplier? You're not going to send it back to you're not going to send it back to the supplier on ocean freight, right? So you're going to be stuck with it because there are going to be circumstances where you have to accept a return on that product. So if you're working with a local supplier and a product's damaged, well, the product just has to go back to the supplier's warehouse, right? Which is, once again, only going to take a few days and it's going to be fairly easy to arrange and do. But if they're overseas, you're going to get stuck with it. You're not going to be able to return it. They may not agree to send you a new one. Uh, And so the responsibility is still yours because you sold the product. So you can't palm the customer off onto the overseas supplier. They're not going to have a bar of that either. Uh, so it's best high ticket drop shipping, which is all, which is the drop shipping that works right uh, in the long term, is with local suppliers. That's a, a hard and fast rule uh, that we have. I, I don't really recommend anything else. So thanks for the question, Superman. Um, Facebook user here ask, asks. What's the fee during the exchange with the supplier? Do they take a big chunk of your profit? Um, no, there's no fee, right? So if, if we're talking, I assume you mean when you're talking about exchange, like customer buys a product off you and then you're, this is how it works in dropshipping, customer pays you, you go place the order with the supplier, you pay the supplier your price and then the product gets shipped to the customer and you're left in your hand with the difference between the price you paid for it and the price you sold it for. That's your profit. And then obviously you're going to minus your other expenses out of that and you're left with your net profit. There is not usually any additional fee involved there, right? So the supplier makes money from the price they charge you. It's costing them less than that to either buy it themselves or manufacture it. So they have their margin built into that price already. So then they don't have to charge you anything else um, on top of that unless they're arranging the shipping for you, in which case if you're doing free shipping on your website and you're not charging the customer for the shipping, which is a choice you can make or not make, depending on a range of factors, then they may charge you a shipping fee, which you're covering, and that's going to come out of your gross profit margin, which once again is, is, is often fine. Um, so there's, But there's no additional costs as you would call a fee. So I, I hope that's what you're referring to, but um, thank you for the question there. I'm just going down the list here. We're going all for live questions here. This is great. People are asking a lot of questions. Um, next question is Superman again. Thanks, Superman. What's your Google ad strategy? Is it on your podcast? Well, I, I actually talked about this a little bit earlier about the difficulty of teaching a proper Google ad strategy via audio or on social media. Um, our Google ad strategy, we call it, uh, we, we primarily focus on Google Shopping but there is a role to play for retargeting ads on the display network as well as search text ads. Um, but we do focus primarily on Google Shopping because obviously it's an e-commerce channel, you know, and it's 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 got a lot of advantages for what we do in high-ticket dropshipping. Now, I will say the Google ad strategy for high-ticket dropshipping is very different to most of what happens in e-commerce or for selling low-ticket products, okay? And Google ads is most useful here as a bottom of funnel, middle to bottom of funnel strategy only is not good at the top of the funnel, right? So if you look at search traffic, you can be categorized into people who are ready to buy now and people who are uh, still in the education phase, learning phase, and, and, and they're doing more broad type searches. High ticket dropshipping paid ads does not work at the top there very well. That is all about organic traffic, right? Search engine optimization, organic search traffic, is the number one traffic channel over time for high-ticket dropshipping businesses. Paid ads are great in the beginning and you always use them, but they they will only profitably get you so far. And so they're not the only thing we do. Um, our Google ad strategy, we call the inverted shopping funnel. That's our name for it. 
Um, it's a particular method of using multiple Google shopping campaigns to um, uh, be able to pay to segment the search terms that are coming in. To, to, for this to make any sense, you might need to have some knowledge of Google Ads. So if you do, this might make some sense. But we don't just run a we don't use smart shopping campaigns or any Google automation that does, we've tested that. A lot of times it doesn't work at this point for high-ticket dropshipping. So we have a very specific way of using multiple Google shopping campaigns to ensure that we um, only spend uh, a very competitive on high-value search terms and put less value on low-value search terms. So it's going to sound very broad. It is very difficult to teach on a podcast. We certainly do have episodes where we talk about it in our program we have a whole module which is basically a course in and of itself dedicated to how you do it and you actually watch me doing it um, on the screen so um, that's what i will say hey john here with a quick break from the episode drop shipping and running a business in general can be a pretty lonely experience as in you're probably unlikely to know many people in your private life who are dropshipping, who are running an e-commerce business or even an online business. It can be a lonely journey and it can be a much more successful journey if you have some sort of connection to a community of people who are doing the same thing as you. If you have a space where you can ask questions, where you can get support, and even if you haven't started a high-ticket dropshipping business yet, somewhere you can go and see other people who are doing what you're doing and, and, and kind of hang out and get a feel for how things work. Well, the good news is that you can do just that. Ben and I have a free Facebook group called The Dropship Tribe where you can join for free uh, and hang out with other high-ticket dropshippers. It doesn't matter if you haven't started a business yet. You can still get in there. And what makes it even better is in that group, you have some access to Ben and I. So we're in there all the time answering people's questions, sharing things that we're working on, things that we're doing at the moment in the high-ticket dropshipping space. And so not only will you get to hang out with other people who are doing high-ticket dropshipping or are interested in high-ticket dropshipping, you also get to hang out with Ben and I in that Facebook group. And so it can be a really good opportunity, not just for you to get help or uh, share your ideas, ask questions, whatever, but even if you just want to get an idea about whether high ticket dropshipping is the right thing for you to be doing. You, I mean, you've probably heard about it. You've listened to me and Ben talk about it. You might've watched our videos, uh, but if you want to get an even closer look, jump into the dropship tribe on Facebook and spend a bit of time there. See what people have been talking about, see all the questions and answers that are in there. Uh, it's been there for years now, so there's quite a bit of information in there. Get a feel for it, join the community, and use it to really help you work out where your dropship uh, journey should be heading. So once again, go onto Facebook. You can just go into the Facebook search bar and search The Dropship Tribe. You'll also find a link in the show notes and uh, hit head in there and join that group. Will comes back and asks, I was just wondering if you had any advice for someone just starting out in the high-ticket dropshipping space? Well, I have a lot of advice for people just starting out in the high-ticket dropshipping space, so I'm, I'm sure I won't get it all across here. Um, but my advice for you if you are just starting out in the high-ticket space is to a few things. At, advice I, I would give to anybody. Find a mentor or mentors and learn how to do it from somebody who knows how to do it, Right. Uh, don't try and make it up yourself. You could over time succeed at that, but you're going to make a ton of mistakes. You're going to lose a lot of time and you are going to lose money 100%, right? You're, you're going to do the wrong things at sometimes. Um, you might get it together over time, but it's going to take you longer and, and it's going to be more expensive than it should be. So find somebody who knows what they're doing, whoever that is. And there's not a lot of people when it comes to high ticket dropshipping, but do find somebody and learn from them, seek their advice um, and and uh, and that sort of thing that's going to significantly cut down the chance that you make mistakes, that you lose time, and that you lose money. So that's the first thing. Do that. Follow the right plan and the right strategy. So I get that recently not a lot of people have heard about high-ticket dropshipping. It's actually been around for way longer than any of the stuff that gets popularized on social media these days, like AliExpress dropshipping, that dumpster fire is finally dying, Um you know, people have only been talking about that for four or five years. Uh, other low-ticket dropshipping, you know, you hear people talking about that stuff. 
that's all actually pretty new. Um, I get that people don't know a lot about high ticket dropshipping, or a lot of people this this is a new concept. Um, it only works in a very specific way, so you can't make it up yourself. Like it's been around for I know people that have done it for twenty years. Uh, I've been doing it for eight years. There is a I've mucked around with it any number of ways over that time. Tried new things, tried to get different things to work. It works in a very specific way. If you want to grow a big high ticket dropshipping business, and where where can you take them? You could take them to um, ten million dollars a year plus in annual revenue. So they can be eight figure businesses a year. They can't be nine figure businesses as just a dropshipping business, but they can make it into the eight figure range, and they can certainly easily make it into multiple seven figures a year in annual revenue. But if you want to get there, you've got to do the right things in the right way. So. If you don't follow doing the right strategies and the right tactics, et cetera, in the right way, and if you're not prepared to do it until it works, then you're not going to get to those levels. So you might as well not dream about it. All right. Like, I, I guess, so learn from the right person, learn the right thing from the right person, and then be patient. Right. So, you know, I might sound like your parents when I say this, but. It's this while dropshipping is easy to get into, it has a low barrier to entry and all of that sort of thing. It's still a business. It's not easy, right? And nobody should ever market dropshipping as being easy. It's simple, but that doesn't mean easy, right? Those two words do not have the same definition. So um, it's not easy. You're going to have to put in work. It's not going to cost you a lot of money to start compared to traditional businesses, but you are going to have to put in some real work here over time and you're going to have to do it consistently. So discipline, consistency, patience, and the that's what's going to see you through, assuming you apply those qualities to the right plan and the right strategy. So that's that's literally my advice. It sounds like really cliched and simple advice, but that's because it's true also. And and as well, that's going to apply to any business that you might want to start is that you're going to have to exhibit those things. This will not happen for you overnight. Once again, if you're looking to get into dropshipping and you're like, I, it has to, I have to be making serious money in 30 days or 60 days or something like that, turn around, walk the other way. That will never happen. That does not happen. And yes, you might say, well, I saw bugger lugs over on TikTok posting about blah, blah, and blah, or somebody sent me this website of these fucking Burks in England standing out the front of a castle in front of, you know, like half a million dollar Lamborghinis talking about how they set up dropshipping businesses for people. That's all fake, right? You see somebody who's posting, I'm making a million dollars a month dropshipping, and all they've got to show for it is no sort of social proof about them helping other people or anything like that, and they've just got some screenshots. 90% of the time, it's fake, right? That stuff doesn't happen. It's not that easy, right? So don't believe that. Um, But like I say, there is also legitimate places to learn this stuff from, so um, go and find those places. That's my advice on that one. Thank you very much for the question. Uh, The Terminator asks, what exactly is SEO? SEO uh, is an acronym that stand, which is stands for search engine optimization. So search engine optimization, and this is my definition. There's probably a much better one online if you Google it. But search engine optimization is uh, employing a range of practices, strategies and practices on your website and off your website to make it more make it easier for search engines to find your website and to make your website um, search engines to think that your website is the best thing for them to show on their search results. So when you go to Google and you search for something at the top of the page of results, you're going to see some ads. right The first thing you're going to see usually is some Google shopping ads with the pictures of the product and the prices. Next, you might see some uh, ads like uh, uh, text ads, you know, and it'll say in a little box next to the headline ad. Below that, you'll see the organic search results, right, which are they're not paid. They're not paid to be there. They're there because the search engine, and this it's the same for Bing or Yahoo or any other search engine, the search engine thinks those are the best results that match most closely with that keyword that the person has searched. 
And so when we say we're doing SEO on our website, what we're doing is we are identifying search terms that we think have the most value for our website. Uh, and i.e. I, what that means is they are the search terms that are most likely for customers to end up buying a product on the other end of that search term. And we are doing things on our website that will help search engines to place our website or relevant pages on our website at the top of those organic results for those search terms that we deem to be, um, you know, the the customers that we can help with the products that we sell. Uh, and so if you can get good pages ranking at the top of the search results for search terms that have good volume behind them, you're not paying for it every time somebody clicks on your ad on your organic search result. It does actually cost you something to get there. But once you're there and you can maintain that, every time somebody clicks on that, as opposed to an ad, you don't pay anything. So while we don't say it's free traffic because it's not technically free traffic, over time, the cost of that traffic is astronomically less than paid traffic. And so what that means is, is that it's your profit margins when you make sales off that traffic are much better than you would get off paid traffic. And you can reach much more traffic with those sort of results than you can with paid traffic for high ticket products. I'm not saying that's the case for every type of product in the world, but for high ticket products that, that are drop shipped, that is 100% the case. Over time, if you do SEO right, you will get way more traffic than you can get from paid ads alone. So that is exactly what, well, not exactly, but that's my definition and my explanation of what SEO is. Thanks for listening to the Dropship Podcast. You can find all the show notes for this episode at dropshippodcast.com. And if you're ready to take the next step in your dropshipping journey, we invite you to join us inside Dropship Breakthrough, where John and I will walk you through step-by-step in starting your own high-ticket dropshipping e-commerce business. But that's not all. Dropship Breakthrough will also teach you everything you'll need to know to grow your business and take it to the next level. So head over to dropshipbreakthrough.com and sign up for our free training that will help you take the first steps towards building and growing your own profitable high-ticket dropshipping business.